Great week. And uh, if you talk to the students, and some of you have kids or grandkids that went, they didn't talk much about any of what you saw there. What they talked about was those share times and worship times. And uh, I've got a youth who went, and uh, she was just, uh, Dad, I've, I've never felt God like that. You know, it's filled with the Holy Spirit. You wouldn't understand. You know, I, <laughs> uh, uh, but thank you, BJ, for your love for those students. And uh, thank you to those that went on that camp. And I'm, I'm thrilled what God's doing. And not uh, really all across our education ministry. It's kind of an exciting time. I know we think back to school, wah, wah. But uh, what an exciting time to pray for our students and to um, uh, uh, celebrate what God is doing. We've got, <clears throat> to that end, uh, uh, our children's minister, Rebecca, has put together a prayer service August 7th at 5 p.m. It'll be right here. And here's the goal for that. You ready? We're going to pray for our schools. That's it. And we're going to pray for not only safety, but we're going to pray for uh, God to move. We've got a lot of Christians who are salt and light in the school system. Our superintendent will be speaking at that. I'll be speaking at that. We want you to come. It'll be a little bit of speaking and a whole lot of praying, and we'll have prayer stations set up. And uh, we, we, it won't be a long service, about an hour, but would love for you to come on Sunday. I, I can't think of a better use of a Sunday afternoon for an hour than come and pray over these students and teachers and uh, bus drivers and faculty and staff and all that goes into making school happen. Uh, uh, that's two weeks from now. Next Sunday, y'all, it's here. The edition and all the work that's gone into that new uh, children's edition, it is ready. The students, there's a work day this afternoon to kind of move some final pieces in. And next Sunday, the students will be in that new space. So for any, yeah, yeah. So uh, I wanted to have some sort of dedication. So next Sunday, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, let's meet in the fellowship hall. I don't know, probably be standing room only, but let's gather in there because the fellowship hall was also renovated. If you haven't seen, I want everybody to see that. Then we'll kind of walk through that new space together. So uh, Sunday afternoon, uh, let's dedicate that new space. And that is a, a much to praise the Lord for. And the students will be moving into that. The, the children will be moving into that. Okay, well... <clears throat> If you've been with us, you know we're in a series I'm calling A Place in His Story, all about 1st and 2nd Samuel. And so if you want to be turning, we'll be in 1st Samuel chapter 24 today. When we last left David last Sunday, we left him at his painful, tearful goodbye. And it was painful and tearful, not just because he's leaving his covenant friend, that best friend Jonathan, but now he knows his time is up. He is no longer welcome in the court of King Saul. And he has become a fugitive, a man on the run. He shows up in chapter 21 at this place called Nob, where there's this, uh, apparently there's some sort of tabernacle and a bunch of priests, 85 priests, and the high priest Ahimelech. But remember, when he shows up, it's kind of funny if you want to go back later and read through 21, and we're going to be in 24 today, but 21, 22, and 23, you'll see uh, Ahimelech and others have not yet got the memo that David is a wanted man. And so it's almost humorous, their interaction. David shows up, and Ahimelech's like, what are you doing here? You're part of the court of King Saul. And David's like, uh, yeah, uh, King Saul sent me on a mission that is so secret. He said not to pack um, any food or weapons. <laughs> so uh, do you have any food, by the way, <laughs> or weapons? You remember this story? And the priest says, well, I got this show bread, but that's, that's holy bread for the priest. And the priest's holy bread becomes David's daily bread. 
And then it, it's almost laughable at this point. He's like, yeah, and what about weaponry? To which Ahimelech's like, yeah, there's a sword here. It's the sword of Goliath. You put it here. <laughs> and David has to be like, what, what? What, huh, what a coincidence. <laughs> Did I? Oh, okay. Well, you know, I'll, t- I'll, go ahead and, I'll go ahead and take that then. That's, just, that's crazy that I would show up here where I stashed a sword. Anyway, Ahimelech doesn't know, he's innocent of all this, but Doeg, the Edomite, who should give us chills, he hears all this, one of Saul's herdsmen, chief herdsmen. And so sure enough, as David, he makes his way, after a brief stint, you can read about that, it was crazy. Literally, he acted crazy in uh, Gath, um, because you'd have to be crazy to go back to the hometown of Goliath. Anyway, after a brief stint in Philistia, uh, Saul shows up at Nob and finds out Doeg, the Edomite, rats him out. And he says, Ahimelech and the priest helped David. And Saul, here's your king of Israel. Here's the one who's supposed to be helping Israel, saving Israel, uh, has put to death Ahimelech, all 85 priests, and in the town of Nob, every man, woman, child, infant, and animal. There's your king of Israel, mass murderer. Well, David, we know this because one escaped and tells David, joins David. David, meanwhile, makes his way to a cave and word of Saul chasing him must have gotten out because if you read in, in chapter 22, Saul, uh, David's mom and dad join him there, which is great. In the midst of all this, David sets his mom and dad up in Moab to be taken care of. Good old David, honoring Ma and Pa even while he's on the run as a fugitive. But the Bible describes all these folks that came to him, everyone who was, it's a real ragtag bunch, everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, basically everybody who had nothing to lose under Saul's leadership are all flooding to David. It's just what David needs. Everyone who's in distress, everyone who's in debt, and everyone who's bitter in soul gathered to him. That's just what you want when when you're a fugitive. Send me your bitter. That'll help me. And what about uh, uh, any riches? No, send me everyone who's in debt. So he became commander over them, and they were with him about 400 men. So David's in a tough place. He's a fugitive, but he's innocent. Now, I want you to ponder that for a second. He's a fugitive, but he's innocent. Think about it. If he he was at war with Saul, it would almost be easier, because then he could enact guerrilla warfare. He could strike back. But he has to fight for his life without fighting. Does that make sense? He's he's innocent. He's not going to take human life. He's not going to commit any crimes, and yet he has to... Be on the run. I wonder if you start to see how this applies to Christians. We don't fight with the world's weapons, and yet here we are in the world. And sometimes it can feel very um, unsettling. You got this fugitive, but he's innocent. It reminded me, actually it reminded me, this isn't very spiritual, but it reminded me of one of my favorite movies from the 90s called The Fugitive, starring Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones. And uh, it's this great uh, uh, movie because Tommy Lee Jones plays this U.S. Marshal who has to capture Dr. Richard Kimball, played by Harrison Ford. The problem is the viewer knows from the very opening scene, Harrison Ford's character is innocent. So he's running for his life, but while he's running for his life, on the, on the escape, he also has to try to seek to prove his innocence. So he's, he's innocent, but he can't fight. There's this great scene after the first escape, Tommy Lee Jones gathers everybody and says, all right, listen up, ladies and gentlemen. Our fugitive has been on the run for 90 minutes. Average foot speed over uneven ground, barring injuries, is four miles an hour. That gives us a radius of six miles. What I want from each and every one of you is a hard target search of every gas station, residence, warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, and doghouse in that area. That's a great line. So King Saul is out to hunt down every warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, and doghouse. 
And that brings us to chapter 24. You may not be physically a fugitive from the law, but for anyone going through a season of testing, a dark time, there's a word for you. And so I'll give you today's outline. I'm calling it the test, the only way to pass the test, and the test results. Okay? So there's going to be your three points. The test, easy to remember, right? The test, the only way to pass the test, and the test results. The test, the only way to pass the test, the test results. Let's start with the test. Let's see how our homeless fugitive is doing. Verse 20, chapter 24, verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, uh, that reference is one miraculous just as Saul was about to capture David, the Philistines attacked, and he had to divert his attention to the Philistines. Well, now when he comes back from the Philistines, he's back to hunting David. He was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Now, let me just point this out. Both David and Saul have a pretty impressive intelligence network of spies because they're always able to find out where each other are and what they're up to. They keep finding it out. Anyway, in Gedi would have been a natural place to be. Up from the scorching heat of the Dead Sea, there's a natural spring flowing in in Gedi where wildlife can flourish. And the, the hills as you go up are dotted with all these many caves, some of them large caverns, great places to hide. It would have had to have been because at this point David has 600 men. And so if 600 men can fit in one cave, we're talking about big, big caverns with lots of hallways and no, no doubt uh, corridors. Verse 2, then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel, wow, and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. 3,000. David has 600. And notice Saul's 3,000 are not just any 3,000, 3,000 chosen men. David's a ragtag bunch of losers escaping debtors' prison who are otherwise on the outs with Saul. So it's, it's not a fair fight. This should be no match. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Okay. We don't normally get this particular detail in Bible stories. But even Bible characters had to use the restroom. <laughs> and naturally, a private matter like this. It actually reminds me of Tommy Lee Jones. He said, every hen house, outhouse, here we go. <laughs> a private matter requires privacy, so he goes into a cave. But, of course, the Bible tells the reader it's not just any cave. Look at the rest of the verse. Now, David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. Y'all, David picks the very cave where 600 men and David are deep within. So you can imagine one of the watchmen who's kind of watching what's going on as Saul's armies approaches, hurries back. Gosh, you're going to... It's Saul. Where? Like, like out there? No, like, like in the cave. The one who's been chasing us down, the one who's leading the charge to find David and all of us, we can end this whole thing right now. There doesn't have to be a second Samuel. Like we can be king right here in 1 Samuel. This is it. You can almost hear the soldiers cheering. This is the day. This is the day that the Lord, David gonna kill Saul. David gonna be king. They can't believe their luck. We can't, the reader can't believe it either. And the men, I'm not just making this up, and the men of David said to him, here is the day, see? Here is the day of which the, the Lord said to you. Remember when the Lord said, behold, I'll give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Here's what I love about that. If you read that and you go, that doesn't sound like a scripture. You're right, it's not. It's nowhere in the Bible. <laughs> These were soldiers, not Sunday school teachers. And so you just have to laugh. Hey, 
dude, it's happening. David, this is the day. Remember in the Bible where God says, I'll give you your enemy and you can do to him whatever you wish. <laughs> Guys, that's not in the Bible. Well, it should be. <laughs> Isn't there a verse in there? Do unto others before they do unto you. <laughs> Sorry, there's not a verse in there. Is my point right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you get it? Now, you can imagine David saying, guys, 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 th- uh, this is nowhere in the Bible. And the, the men, are, they don't care. They're like, listen, this is in there. It's in first opinions. It's somewhere in there. We are, we're doing this. So spurred on by his men, David quietly gets up and takes the sharpest blade he's got. I don't know. I doubt he used Goliath's sword. He probably used a knife for this part, right? Because I imagine Goliath's sword would have been very heavy and loud. Then David arose. And you can imagine his band of followers collectively holding their breath. Do it, David. Don't hesitate, David. Then David arose and stealthily cut off Saul's head. Come on, this is the moment. Finish him, David. You did it with Goliath, and in a way, this is an even greater victory. The Bible tells us then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And the men are like, what? You can imagine David coming back. I, I got a corner of his robe. And they're like, then you missed. <laughs> what, what are you thinking? What are you? David sneaks back. And afterward, here's what's great. Verse 5, David's conscience is so tender, he feels bad about even that. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And to which the reader's like, dude, you... you. You showed great restraint. Why are you feeling bad? He says, nah, verse six, he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the, the Lord's anointed. Now there's a lot of lords in there, but you see, he's saying, uh, I, I'm not gonna sin against my Lord Saul because he's the Lord's anointed and put out my hand against him, seeing he's the Lord's anointed. Now there is scripture for this. Exodus twenty two twenty eight says you're not even to curse the ruler of the people. That's probably what he's thinking of. He knows his Torah. He knows he can't sin against God, even though it looks like a golden opportunity. Well, how do you think his men reacted to this? All this high and mighty Bible talk. Well, exactly like you'd think. You may feel bad. <laughs> you can imagine the soldier saying, but I don't. Here, hand me that sword. You know, I'll do it myself. So David, verse 7, persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. That word persuaded is a little misleading. It sounds like he calmly reasoned with them. But that word persuade, it comes from the same Hebrew root that means tear apart. Uh, if you've ever seen you know, two people that wanted to fight and you got in the middle and you pulled them back, you, you are tearing apart this guy from the path that he's on. So you can imagine mighty David having to hold back uh, these guys off the war path. And clueless Saul, Saul rose up and left the cave without washing his hands, and went on his way. Had no idea he was protected by the man of God. Now, why do I keep referring to this section as the test? The test. This was a test for David. Sometimes, God will allow his servants these opportunities to reveal what is the state of your heart. To reveal what's going on in your heart, you'll be given these moments, these tests. And what it comes down to is this. On the one hand is the revealed word of God. What you know is right and wrong. 
on the other hand, is all this temptation and confusion and justification. Now, when I say test, don't get it twisted. A lot of Christians stress out about the wrong thing. A lot of Christians, when it comes to the will of God, particularly with young people, they stress out about things that are amoral in nature. Amoral. What do I mean by that? There's immoral, that's wrong, and there's moral, that's right. A lot of these choices are amoral. Uh, 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 Should I go and get um, uh, ice cream this afternoon? Should I get chocolate ice cream or should I get vanilla ice cream? Well... What's the Lord's will? How can we know? What if, I were, what if I'm praying about it and I'm, I realize God's telling me I'm supposed to get chocolate ice cream, but I ordered vanilla? And what if, what if I had gotten chocolate and they were out of chocolate and they had to go to the back and while they were going to the back, they gave me enough time, someone came up to me and said, I'm lost and need to be saved and because you chose chocolate ice cream, right? People lose their mind over this stuff. So when it comes to chocolate ice cream or vanilla, God doesn't care. And I know you're not used to hearing preachers say that, but there are some decisions where there's no need to stress out about that. I think God cares maybe if we eat too much and become gluttons, or if there's someone who is poor and in need of food and we don't help them. These are the things God cares about. Does that make sense? And so you hear you have young people all focused on where they're going in life. And I always, you know, Alabama or Auburn, this is not a moral decision. <laughs> I realize for some of you it may be. That's fair. That's fair. Maybe a bad example. But you get my point. And what I want to encourage young people is God is much, more, much less concerned about where than who. Who's going to be your Lord? Who will you serve? How will you live your life, right? So there's, there's these moral decisions. That's what we're dealing with here. Now, obviously, if God, tell, if God speaks to you plainly and says, you know, uh, 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 choose a particular flavor of ice cream, then by all means, go with that. But my point is, when we say test, I want us to all understand we're talking about the same thing. These are moments when God's clearly revealed this way is the right way, but this way sure, sure would be more expeditious. This way sure would be faster. This way sure would be a shortcut. And I know God's word says this, but think about it. It would not have been hard to justify the slaying of Saul. The king was guilty and deserved to die, if for nothing else, the mass murder that happened back at Nob. Removing Saul might lead to a national revival. Uh, And after all, David was the anointed king, wasn't he? What's the harm in sort of moving up God's timetable a little bit? David realized he stood at the crossroads, at a critical turning point in his life at this cave. God had promised him the throne, but would he take it in merciless blood, slaying with his own hand the Lord's anointed and putting that bloody crown on his own head? Whether he would one day reign was never in doubt, but how he would reign and what kind of kingdom his leadership would produce was at stake in that dark cave in En Gedi. Listen to the words of A.W. Pink on this moment. He writes, One stroke of the sword and he steps into a throne. Farewell to poverty. Farewell to the life of a hunted goat. Reproaches, sneers, defeat would all cease. Adulations, triumphs, and riches would be his. But they would be his at the sacrifice of faith. No, not even a throne at that price is worth it. Faith will wait. Hmm. Let me say it this way. David knew. The Lord's will must be achieved the Lord's way. The Lord's will must be achieved the Lord's way. If that is too uh, 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 
figurative language. Let me put it concretely. An opportunity is not an opportunity if you must compromise integrity. See? An opportunity is not an opportunity if you must compromise integrity. Why? The Lord's will must be achieved the Lord's way. So David faced this test. Again, I go back to some people, you know, well, but, but there was an open door. Didn't, didn't God provide an open door? Be careful with that open door stuff. Be careful with that open door. There's lots of open doors, right? And sometimes we can achieve sinful means by going through what appears to us an open door. Let's go by God's revealed will, not always circumstances. After all, Jonah was told, go and preach to the Ninevites. And when he got down to the boats, one was heading toward Nineveh. And what's this? There's a ship bound for Tarshish, the opposite direction. And it's leaving in five minutes. Huh, what do you know? An open door. Yeah, it's an open door to go be disobedient. So God's revealed word. That's what we know that, that faces that test. Now, David faced the test. I would like to point out that really chapters 24, 25, and 26 all hang together like the, like the cheese on your pizza. They all hang together. <laughs> and, and, and they must sort of be kept in your mind together. But, but these three, they're really, they're three tests. Uh, David faced the test. David's greater son would face similar testing, wouldn't he? the son of David, Jesus of Nazareth, would also face tests, wouldn't he? In fact, it, it says David was in the wilderness at En Gedi. The son of David, Jesus Christ, he was in the wilderness when he faced his test. And just like David had heard the word from the Lord, you are going to be king. He was the anointed king. Jesus, in Matthew 3, had just gone through his baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So they both knew that they were anointed as God's anointed. They both had that word rattling around in their hearts and in their heads. And then they go and face the lies of the enemy. They go and face the test. For David, it was, how are you going to achieve that kingship? For the son of David, it was the same thing. Satan faces him with three temptations, the third of which, a shortcut. All these kingdoms I will give to you, if what? If you will but bow down and worship me. David's temptation in many ways is like the son of David's temptation. Could they, would they remember in the darkness of that testing, would they remember in the dark what God had told them in the light? That's a good word, by the way, for youth returning from youth camp who've been on a spiritual high. Now that you're back among your peers, in your homes, and back to summer life, can you remember in the dark what God told you in the light. You're going to be king. Satan said to Jesus, look, you're going to be king. Technically, in a perverse way, the devil was offering to Jesus what he knew God had promised him, but Jesus knew the Lord's will must be achieved the Lord's way. So that's David, the son of David, and I hope you see how this applies to you. An opportunity is not an opportunity if you have to compromise integrity. The temptation is going to be to shortcut. Well, I... You know, I could get, oh, I could get what I need. I am one little lie. It's a little lie. Nobody would know. It's no big deal. I'm one little lie away from getting what I want in a faster way. One underhanded comment. I tear one person down and then I'll get where I need to be. I think of single people who God's standards for sexual integrity are complete faithfulness in marriage and complete purity in singleness, but Ah, uh, who knows when that could be? Could, couldn't I shortcut that a little bit? You can, the examples are plentiful. Don't do it. It's a test. 
In all these cases, the test is the shortcut. I get at the risk of a really bad pun. I guess you could say the title of the sermon is Don't Cut Corners. <laughs> but that's the test. Now, uh, if you're still with me, I hope that the natural question that arises in your mind is, okay, yes, that's the test. Here's God's revealed word, and here's this moral decision, and yet this would be the shortcut. Here's the test. Okay, but how? How do I keep integrity? How do I pass these tests of character? The test I told you the second point, the only way to pass the test. The only way to pass the test. Let's go back to verse 8. Not only does Saul, excuse me, David spare Saul's life, he confronts him. Look at verse 8. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave. <laughs> it's a pretty bold move. And he called, to, called after Saul, my lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, uh, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Now here, David is being incredibly generous to Saul uh, because he is attributing Saul's bad behavior to taking bad advice. Saul, you must be getting some really bad advice. Why are you listening to all these dreadful people that are telling you this? Everybody knows the people around Saul are actually telling him the opposite. David hadn't done you any wrong. You need to lay off David. It's Saul and his own wickedness that's chasing David, but David extending an olive branch. See that? Always the grace, always get, no, it's probably not you, Saul. You're probably not a deranged psychopath. You're probably just getting some bad advice. See what he does? He's being generous, he's being gracious. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And he, he didn't see it. His eyes probably hadn't adjusted from the bright sun in the cave. That's the point. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. In other words, I've been the victim of some bad advice myself earlier today. You can hear the men like, amen. <laughs> I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he's the Lord's anointed. And here's, the, of course, the fateful moment. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand? You can imagine Saul grabbing his robe. <gasps> for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and didn't kill you, you may know and see there's no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. Here it comes. The only way to pass the test. He doesn't say, now be kind to me and I'll trust in your kindness. Or call off this hunt and I'll be safe. He appeals somewhere else. Or more accurately, someone else. Verse 12. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. In other words... If I had had a wicked heart, Jesus says something very similar. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He said, look, if I'd had a wicked heart, I would have done wickedly. But you can see, it's not in my heart to hurt you. I don't have a wicked heart towards you. And besides, I, I would not harm you, and I could not. You have 3,000 special forces. I got 600 losers. To which they're like, hey. <laughs> Sorry, no offense, guys. <laughs> but verse 14 what are you doing? After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog. And he thinks about it. I'm about as harmful to you as a dead dog. In fact, it's, I'm after a flea. I am as harmful to you, King Saul, as the flea is on a dead dog. But his main point, he repeats in verse 15, may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. There it is. Listen carefully. The only way to pass the test is trust. The only way to pass the test is trust. 
You've got bitterness, you've, you, you can't seem to get over it, you've, you've got a lack of forgiveness in your heart, you've, you've got this test, you know you need to do this thing, you know there's a lot of shortcuts being offered to you. Will you trust? That's what it comes down to. Will David trust in the Lord? His active confidence in Yahweh's justice. Can you leave the matter in God's hands? If the choice is to sin and get what you want now, or tell the truth and leave the matter in God's hands, it takes a lot of trust to say, I'm going to tell the truth and leave the matter in God's hands. Trust. Listen, you will always hold back in your obedience to God. You'll always hold back in your integrity until you trust him. Do you know why people break their integrity? Do you know why people do these dishonest things? Sometimes we think it's for greed and it's for a grab for power. I don't think so. I think the number one people break their integrity is fear. If I don't lie, I'll lose so much. If I don't cover this up, I have so much to lose. I can't risk that. I can't risk forgiving that person. I can't risk being reconciled with this person. I've got too much to lose. Integrity, fear. Here's David running for his life who has so much to lose. And with, when you have so much to lose, what you need is someone to trust. Well, I can tell the truth because even if I lose everything, I won't lose you, Lord. I can be faithful and pure until marriage. Why? Because no matter uh, what the world says, I can trust your ways, oh God. I don't have to lie and cover up. Why? My reputation is in your hands, oh Lord. I don't have to, uh, whatever, be prideful or greedy or lust or steal. Why? It's you, God. I trust you. We have a pretty cool proof of this. You don't always get this, but when you read through a Bible story, sometimes you think, what was this character thinking? Wouldn't it be cool to know what was David thinking in this moment? This is one of the rare moments where we actually get to see what David was thinking. Because he wrote not only one, he wrote two songs about this moment. They're called Psalms, Psalm 57 and Psalm 142. And he titled it, look at Psalm 57, for example. Just, you, know, you can turn there if you want. But, but look, look, to the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a miktem of David. Uh, Chuck, next Sunday, uh, will you lead us in a miktem? <laughs> Whatever that is, we don't know. Anyway, Do Not Destroy. Look, look at the context. When he fled from Saul in the cave. David is saying, this is what was going through my head. This is the song I wrote. This is, this is, this is, you heard of mountain music. This is cave music. And he wrote, and you can imagine, think about this moment. He wrote, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. Don't you see the trust most people would say, I'm in a cave. My refuge is this cave. David says, a cave is no refuge. Cave might, might just as easily become a trap. No, my refuge is not in a where, it's in a who. David, in a strong cave, says, no, 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 no. my refuge is God. You may be in a strong financial situation. You may be in a good family. You may be in a good place. Your refuge is not in any of these things. It's in the Lord. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. And what is that purpose? Anointed king. And he's, rem he's remembering in the dark what was told him in the light. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. I'd say he did that, wouldn't you? He will put to shame. The people who are after me are going to be put to shame. There is nothing more shameful than your near murder bathroom break. They literally happened. 
God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul's in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of men, whose teeth are like spears and arrows and tongues like sharp swords. Here he's thinking of the 3,000 special forces. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be all over, over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they've fallen into it themselves. Again, they, they chase me up into these caves and think they've got me, but it's in the cave that actually they fell into their own trap. My heart is steadfast, oh God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. You ever notice that? People who are grounded in the steadfast love of God can themselves be steadfast in the midst of a bunch of drama. Why? Because their heart is grounded in the steadfast love of God. They have the chesed of God. They can give that steadfast love to others. And he doesn't want to be quiet. He wants to shout, awake my glory. And it's not till he comes out of the cave that he can. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I'll give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I'll sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast, there's a sermon there. I just realized that's a, uh, those are Gentiles. He's saying your glory is going to go out through all the earth. It's not, of course, until the greater son of David that we see that fulfilled in Acts. That's another sermon, another day we move on. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Now we need to close. I'm just trying to say the only way to pass the test, you see it right here in his thoughts, it's that kind of overwhelming trust in God. The test is to take an opportunity at the expense of your integrity. The only way to pass that test is trust. It's not beating yourself up. It's not white knuckling. It's not saying, okay, I've got to get it better. I've got to get it right. The best. It's trust in a living God. And that frees you to live a life of integrity. <clears throat> that points, of course, to the son of David. Jesus trusted the Lord. When he went through his darkest hour, what did he say? As he was hanging there on the cross, what did he say? Oh, uh, uh, I'll make a deal with these soldiers if they'll just let me live. Of course not. I'll recant everything I've said and make peace with the chief priests and scribes and Pharisees. Of course not. No, on the cross, the son of David said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Now what about you? Some of you are being tested right now to get something by means of a sinful shortcut. Trust is the only way to pass the test. Will you say with the true and greater son of David, Jesus Christ, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Every time a child of God chooses the right path, they are in effect echoing those words. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. I'm trusting you with my future, not anyone else. Well, I promise you the test, the only way to pass the test and the test results. What was the result of this test? Affirmation, confirmation. Look at verse 16. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. This guy's unhinged. He's just about to kill David. Now he's weeping over it. Is he convicted? Is he, I don't know. With Saul, you read this and you just, you watch this guy implode. And he said to David, you're more righteous than I. <laughs> yeah, it's an understatement, Saul. For you've repaid me with good, whereas I have repaid you with evil. Yeah, yeah, you're more righteous. The, the bar is pretty low, you mass murderer. But yeah, yeah, yes, that is true. And you've declared this day how you have dealt with me and that you didn't kill me when the Lord put you into my hands. For if a man finds his enemies, enemy, will he let him go away safe? In other words, you did something unnatural. That's trust in the Lord will do that. It will make you look un, unnatural and countercultural to the world. So may the Lord reward you with good for what you've done to me this day. 
And here he gets that affirmation. This is the results of the test. That affirmation, that confirmation from the Lord. And now, verse 20, behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. And everyone gets to hear this. From Saul, no less. And David gets that affirmation. Weary David gets that encouragement. God will see him through. And then Saul ends by saying something so, it's almost pitiful. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. Seriously, after all you've done and tried to erase me, you want grace? What did David say? We know what David said. Because he trusts God. He swore this to Saul. Now, he trusts God just because he swore that to Saul doesn't mean he trusts Saul. So the story doesn't end with David going back with Saul. No, no, no. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Very good. David's test results. Confirmation. Affirmation. I'm going to ask the musicians to come and lead us in a time of response. Now, if you are a savvy listener, you have noticed That in each of these three points, I've tried to break it down and show how David applies to David, applies to the son of David, and applies to you. And if you're not a savvy listener, you now know. I was trying each point (laughs) to apply it to David, the son of David, and to you. The test. David's heart was being tested. Would he do it? The Lord, would he do the Lord's will, the Lord's way? Or by sin, would he take matters into his own hands? The son of David, Jesus, was tested in the wilderness. And every Christian faces these tests. Hmm? And I said the only way to pass the test, David trusted God. The true and better David trusted God all the way to the cross. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. And you, every Christian, what about you? Will you trust God with your reputation? Will you trust God with your life? Will you trust him with your future? And now we've come to the test results. David received that affirmation what about the son of David here's where things are different when David had his big moment there before Saul and he laid everything out David received affirmation and encouragement in his fateful hour but when the son of David Jesus cried out from that cross my God my God why hast thou forsaken me Shouldn't we be rewarded for that kind of obedience? Shouldn't we be rewarded for that kind of trust? Instead of being rewarded, Jesus Christ on the cross was forsaken. And so when he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The answer from heaven is silence. No word of affirmation. No sky ripped open and the booming voice, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. That's what he got at his baptism. Why wouldn't he get that there? Well, you know why, don't you? He bore the silence of God because on the cross, the Bible tells us, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might be the righteousness of God. The son of David from the cross heard no affirmation, heard no, this is my beloved son. He received the silence that we sinners deserve so that we could receive the benediction that Jesus deserved. Do you know why, Christian, do you know why the God of the universe can look at you and say, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter. You are my child. And in you, I'm well pleased. Do you know that's his posture towards you? Do you know that's how the God of the universe looks at you, Christian? And do you know, do you know why? The only way that's possible 
is because the sinless, spotless Lamb of God bore our sacrifice for sin in our place as our substitute for our salvation. He was denied hearing those words so that you would forever hear them. So that God could look at you today and say, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter. And so as Saul said to David, I would say to you, may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. David treated Saul with incredible grace when he didn't deserve it. And that's a picture of how the son of David treats us. God saves sinners. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this test that David passed, that the son of David passed. We pray, oh God, for grace to pass our tests. And Lord, we pray for more and more trust in you, more and more faith in you, that when presented with these tests, we know the only way to pass the test is radical trust and faith in you. And God, thank you that we can receive the blessing, the test results, because you were denied that blessing on the cross. And thank you that we, who would love to be like David every time, find ourselves often more like Saul than David, recipients of a grace that we certainly didn't deserve or earn. So God, grant to us to walk humbly with you this week, trusting in you to pass these tests. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.